0: All right, guys, hey, welcome to New Life. Glad to have you guys with us. Hey, I just, I, yeah, hey, I'm glad to be here. I just want you guys to know that. Uh, I want to welcome everybody worshiping with us at our North Platte campus, as well as those worshiping with us in our East venue. Today, if you're here with me right now, um, you are sitting in our West venue. So we're one church, multiple locations. We're worshiping God all at the same time. God seems to be adding to our church um people that are being saved on a weekly basis i'm excited about that that's what i believe the church one of the main functions of the church in in its existence is to proclaim the good news of jesus christ and that should be producing people that are committing their life to christ every single week we've got somebody that's committing their life to christ here they're filling out a card like the contact card that's in front of you and they're turning it in stating i've committed my life to christ we're contacting them as pastors, and we're helping them grow um, in their journey. We're getting them connected to life groups, so some of you are helping us in this process of doing what Jesus said, seek and save the lost and make disciples, and our heart is to do that here at New Life Church. So I just want to say welcome to you that are here, that maybe have filled out one of those uh, salvation cards recently, and you are starting a brand new journey with Christ. I want to say to you welcome, whether you're here at our Carney campus or you're at our North Platte campus we're excited about what God's doing. Here at New Life, we preach in what we call just a teaching series. It means we, we take a topic or a title and then we use it as a filter to look at God's word, to take this vast book that's full of wisdom that gives life to us every time we read it and narrow it down to like some bite-sized chunks so that we can apply God's word to our life. So that's part of our, our DNA, part of our culture here is that um, we don't just try to, you know, go deep in God's word so deep that you can't understand it. We, we try to mine it for its gold and then apply it to our lives so you can walk out of here today and put it into action. And so today we're in a teaching series we've entitled Dark Room. And the Dark Room concept really comes from the old photography concept where you take a negative and you develop it into a photograph that other people can look at. Um, and that's kinda where we're staying focused. But today <clears throat> today I want to expand upon it just for a moment. I want to kinda take the dark room concept to to and overlay it on top of like a an iceberg. So an iceberg, when Kim and I lived in Alaska for a number of years, I made my way up to the north slope of Alaska, and I saw some icebergs that were floating out there. Nothing the size of maybe what you would see, you know, maybe floating down in Antarctica, but definitely some big ones. And one of the unique things about an iceberg is that scientists will tell you that the, the, the part you see above the water is about 10% of an iceberg. 90% of the iceberg is what you see below the water. It's the 90% that below it that makes it a force, that's, that's you know in need of reckoning, right? It's the kind of force that can drop a ship you know, in the ocean. It can break through its hull. It's the kind of thing that causes an iceberg to have mass and to have an importance to it, right? And to be watchful of it and to looking for it. And in your life, your life is a lot like an iceberg. People only see about 10% of who you are, and they don't know what made up that 10%. But what made up the 10% is the 90% that was developed The dark room experience of your life is where the 90% of you seems to be developed. And most people that are in your life, most of your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, they may never know the details that built that 90% of who you are. They may never be able to go back and you may never share all the details of the dark room experiences that were building the character in you so that the 10% that the world tends to see all the time can make a lifelong lasting impact on others. One of the things I know about God is that God's trying to take your life and he's trying to use your life to impact the lives of others so that other people will see Jesus living in you and that they will choose to follow Christ as well. It's one of the lifelong agendas of a Christ follower or of a Christian is that my life is not my own. I'm being, I'm using my life. I'm spilling my life out. I'm spending my life for the sake of the cross of Christ so that others might see the goodness of God lived in me and lived through me. And that 10% of who you are is important and it matters but it's, it speaks volumes, it's like the stage that God puts you on, but the foundation is the 90% that you have to go through to let the 10% shine. And today as we go through the dark room, <clears throat> we're wanting to focus on that, that 90% of what God's trying to build in you so that the 10% can stand on the stage and shine for him we're looking at different Bible uh, characters, different men and women in God's Word. And we're staring at their life for a moment because we can see some things, right? That they're in the past. So we can see the darkroom experience and how they eventually ended up on the stage that God had for their life so that they could shine brightly for Him. And we're trying to take that knowledge and that wisdom and apply it to our life today in 2017. So today we're going to be looking at uh, a man by the name of Elisha. He was a prophet of Israel, a powerful man that made a great impact for God. He, he fulfilled God's mission of the prophet, which was to help the people get connected back to the heart of God. Now, if you want to know more about Elisha, you're going to need to look at 1 Kings chapter 19. That's where Elisha shows up on the stage. But there's two guys we're going to be talking about today. You have Elisha, right? He's the one we're dealing with. But then you have his mentor, Elijah. Now, I'm human. Those two names are really similar with one another. Um, I'm probably going to screw this up at some point today. So would you just raise your hand if you would give me grace if I screw those names up at one point or another? How many of you guys would give me grace if I do it two, three, four, five times? How about ten times? You guys are gracious people. I, I'm going to do my best not to do that. Elijah's the mentor. Elisha becomes the student. We're going to talk about Elisha, but to do that, i got to talk to you about Elijah. So in 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah is on the scene and he's going through a very uh, tumultuous situation where the prophets, which Elijah was one of them, the prophets are being persecuted, they're being hunted down, and they're being killed. And Elijah, underneath the weight and the pressure of this, is really at a point of breaking. He's at a point of despair. He he's at this place where he kind of wants to throw the towel in. He's like, God, haven't I done enough? These people are so stiff-necked. These people are so anti-you. There's nothing else I can do. And so he is kind of finding himself at this somewhat of a you know difficult situation. And so God, at that moment, speaks to him and says, Elijah, I want to meet with you. Come to the mountain come to Mount Sinai. Come to Mount Sinai. I want to meet with you. And so Elijah makes the journey to Mount Sinai. And while he's there, he gives us a picture of what the atmosphere, what the culture is that he's really dealing with, with these people of Israel. Here's what he says in First Kings chapter 19, verse 10. Elijah talking to God, he says, I've, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty But the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. They tore down your altars, and they killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. So Elijah's living in this time period where all these prophets have been killed. He's the last one standing, and he's going, they're hunting me down as well. These people of yours, God, they've turned from you. They're worshiping Baal. They're worshiping false gods. They're worshiping idols. There's little that I can do. So what do you think God says to Elijah? You think he says to him, well, Elijah, you gave it your best. It's okay. Just live here on the mountain until until you die. That's not what God says to him at all. In fact, God says, I got three assignments for you, my man. Here's what I want you to do. First thing I want you to do is I want you to go to the, the north of Israel into what we know as Syria, and I want you to go up there and I want you to anoint this man, Hazel. I want you to anoint him as king. Yeah, go up there to the enemy's territory, walk in and say, Hazel, you're now king, and I'm anointing you in the name of the Lord my God. Why? Because God was setting up an enemy for Israel to come and to basically berate them and to bring to cause harm to them because of their disobedience and their walking away from God and their worshipping of other idols and you know just their turning of their back to him then God says to him then I want you to go and I want you to find this man in Israel his name's Jehu I want him to be the next king because he'll be a man who will drive out he'll hunt down those who worship false gods He'll drive them out of the land or he'll slay them with the sword. Nobody is going to stand in my presence. It's going to worship false idols and worship false gods. Then God says to him, oh, and by the way, I also have this other young man. His name's Elisha. I want you to go find him. Here's the lineage of his family. Here's where you can find him. I want you to go and I want you to anoint him because he's the the one who's going to succeed you, Meaning, meaning he's the one who's going to take your job. That's what God told him to do. So what what is it that uh, ends up happening here? Is that God's making a promise to Elijah. He's saying, I know that you're in a difficult situation. I know that the people are turning on you. I know that they've hunted down the prophets. But if you do these three things, great things are going to happen for you. And here's 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 how it's worded in 1 Kings 19, verse 17. God says this to Elijah, anyone who escapes from Hazel will be killed by Jehu. And those who escape Jehu will be what by Elisha? Killed. Wow. So when God sees this guy we're going to talk about, he sees Elisha as a powerful warrior. So if you're Elijah, and you're going to go anoint this king of the enemy, and you're going to anoint the king of Israel, and then you're going to anoint this guy who's going to succeed you, and by the way, he'll, he'll drop people with the sword if he has to, where are you going to go look for this guy? For me, if I'm living back then, I might be, I'm gonna go look for somebody that's got a lot of muscle, right? He's carrying a big sword on his side, maybe two on his back, crisscrossed, you know, like that ninja style, right? He's got daggers hanging all over the place. He's doing, he's wearing the common bling of the day. He's got all the concealed weaponry. I'm probably gonna walk into the, the local pub and try to find this guy. But that's not where Elijah goes. Elijah follows God's direction and he ends up at a farm and he finds this young man, Elisha. And he's behind two oxen and he's plowing the fields. In fact, in the Bible, it says that he is, he's working the 12th pair of oxen. He's working those things. He's working in the field that his dad owns. Elijah's sitting there watching this happen and he's assessing a few things and he's quickly coming to the understanding that Elisha, who's running the 12th pair, is managing, you know, pairs one through 11. He's managing where they go, what they do, and the servants that work those. This guy's got leadership. Then he's looking at him and he's going, "Man, this this is his this is his family's land. These guys have got some wealth." Right now, he's not looking at it from a from a covet coveting type of perspective he's just evaluating it from a leader perspective and he's sitting there and he's watching this and he can tell this family's got a lot of wealth look at all of the oxen that they have and the way that they pull this off and so elijah's got great leadership he comes from a great lineage his family is very wealthy god are you sure you picked this guy yeah i picked that guy so at the right opportune moment elijah gets up from where he was watching he walks over to Elisha, who's working working the plow behind the two oxen, and he comes up behind him, he takes his cloak off, and he lays it upon him. The cloak, a piece, of, a piece of, uh, cl- of clothing that would have been made out of fur or animal skin, something that would have kept you warm at night, roll it up as a pillow at night, maybe wrap it around you in a certain way so it can carry maybe a heavy item, the backpack of its day. Very useful, but yet a status symbol. And Elijah takes it off, and he lays it upon Elisha's shoulders. And Elisha, he knew instantly what this meant. Except for when he turns around, there's no one right there. The guy is across the field already. He's not there, but Elisha instantly knows what this means. It means two critical things. One, Elijah, that guy right there, he's the prophet. He's he's gonna know about Elijah, right? He's gonna know about this guy, very popular. He's like, that guy just picked me to be his spiritual son. And because he has put it on my shoulders, that means he just picked me to succeed him. Everything was spoken in the one act of obedience that Elijah was asked to do, anoint Elisha. But it's the next thing that happens that we need to pay critical attention to. It's the next thing in the story that we can glean a lot from in this, what does God do in the darkroom moments? Take a look at this scripture, 1 Kings 19 verse 20. Elisha left the oxen standing there. He left his job responsibility, all of his supervision. He ran after Elijah, and he said to him, First let me go and kiss my father and my mother goodbye, and then I'll go with you. Elijah replied, Go on back, but think about what I've done to you. Think about what I've done to you. See, what I've just done to you is I've anointed you to be a prophet. Elijah, think about it with me for a moment. You're going to leave everything that your family has. You're going to leave all the wealth and all the security you know, and all the leadership that you're given here and all the inheritance most likely. You're going to leave all of that and you're going to follow me. You do realize they're hunting me down, right? They're trying to kill me. You do realize I'm the last prophet left. I'm asking you to give up all of that and become a prophet of God. I can't guarantee the next hour of your life. But Elisha is so excited to follow God that he gives it all up. Here's something that I know God's trying to show us today from this passage of scripture about how God develops us in the dark room: is that character is developed when we have to push past our fear. Elisha had to push past the fear of the persecution that he knew was happening. He knew he lived in darkness in a town you know what i'm saying I mean, he knew people he knew that the culture of his day was wicked and vile and evil he heard the reports of all the prophets that were dropping like flies he probably knew they were hunting after elijah he had to push past the fear of his own life being given up so that he could stand on the stage where god wanted him to stand and shine brightly for god that means you and me we're going to push past our fears our fears of failure The fear of if I step out and I trust God, you know what happens if it all falls apart? You're gonna have to push past that or otherwise you're gonna stay stuck in the dark room and you're never gonna stand on the stage for God and do what God's asked you to do. You're gonna have to push past your fear of the opinion of others. Some of you, your fear of the opinion of others weighs so greatly upon you that you're stuck in the dark room and you'll never stand on the stage and shine brightly for God until you care more about what God says than what others say. We have to push past our fear of leaving our normal, just like Elisha did. He had to leave his normal. He had to leave what was comfortable and what was safe. And all of us, we have to get that, to that point where we'll push past leaving our normal that we can understand, that we can wrap our heads and our hearts around so that we can go and accomplish what God's asked us to. And if you really want to develop the kind of Christ-like character that God's trying to instill within our hearts, then we have to push past the fear of trusting God even into the unknown. That's what you saw Elisha do. When he left everything, he was trusting God into the unknown. He had no idea how much longer he would live by following God. He just knew it was a difficult moment. One thing I know for sure because of what God's word says is that God's not the one who gives us a spirit of fear. If you sense fear right now in your life with what you're facing and you're in the dark room moment, you need to know something. That fear doesn't come from God. That fear comes from an adversary that's trying to lock you up and to keep you where you are so that you can't become the person God wants you to and shine on his stage. And the psalmists have some great things, some great instructions for us in light of fear, which is common to all of us, by the way. All right? Every single one of us in this room experiences fear at some point and in some place, especially when we sense God's asking us to do something that's over the top and beyond our control. But the psalmists have a number of things to say. Let's look at these three scriptures. Psalms 23, 4. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid. Even when I go through the darkest of the dark rooms, even when I have to face the most difficult challenge spiritually I have ever challenged, ever been challenged with in my life, I will not be afraid. Why? For you are close beside me recognizing God's presence with you is one of the key ways you're gonna overcome your fear and stand on the stage God wants you to stand on and shine brightly for him. But that's not all of it. Look at this next one in Psalms 34. I prayed to the Lord and he answered me. He freed me from my fears. One of the things that we need to put into practice is running to the one who has the ability to actually wipe away the fear. Run to him and pray, meaning put your dependence on him. Let him know, let God know today. God, I can't get beyond this point. Uh, There's no way I'm ever gonna get out of this dark room and stand on the stage that you want me to stand on to shine brightly for you. I am in desperate need of your help. Humble yourself, pray, and ask God. He freed me from my fears. Psalms 94, when anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought joy to my soul. When anxiety was great within me. You ever felt that before? When anxiety was great within you and you you were uncertain of what this next situation was going to hold? Anxiety is within you and you're going through a difficult situation in your life and you just don't know how you're gonna get out of it? When anxiety was within me, your consolation brought me joy to my soul. What is the consolation? It's the comfort of God. It literally means the comfort of god it means that god is wrapping my arm his his arms around you and he's holding you even though anxiety is trying to well up with inside of you have you ever been in a place where you've been really scared remember when you were a kid and you were really scared but your dad was there what happened to your fears they should have gone down they should go down all right but what happens when you were there with one of your siblings like your older brother Did your fear go down or fear go up? Normally, your fear went up because the older brother's like, boom, right? (laughs) Like, scare you, like, make, make the most of it. But when you were with dad or you're with mom, it's amazing how you faced some of your greatest fears because you felt the security and the shelter that they brought. This is what God's talking about. Don't let fear keep you in the dark room run to god pray to him seek him let him wrap his arms of comfort around you push past your fear and trust that god is faithful and true that he's the one leading you and moving you then he can do greater things than what your own eyes and what your own flesh can feel back to the story of elisha though Um, all elisha wanted to do when when he was asked by elijah to follow him all he wanted to do was what I want to just go back. and I want to give my mom and my dad a hug and a kiss. What a good son. Right, moms? I mean, come on. That's a good son. Especially when he's going to ditch you with like, you know, 12 pair of oxen out in the field. Especially when he's going to leave you. Especially when out of the blue he's going to walk away from most likely likely his inheritance. All he wants to do is go give you a hug and give you a kiss. Right? Now that's what he said he wanted to do. But there was something else he did that is highly significant. And if we learned this then it will help us get from the dark room onto the stage that god wants us to shine on look at what he did 19 verse 21 so Elisha returned to his oxen and he slaughtered them he killed them he used the wood from the plow he broke it up into pieces and he built a fire to roast their flesh then he passed around the meat to the townspeople and they all ate then he went with elijah as his what as his assistant He went back to the very thing he had his greatest comfort in and his greatest security in, and he takes his sword and he chops it up. Now that tells me God's picking the right guy because if they get through Hazel and they get through Jehu, God's got the right guy, right? He knows how to work a sword. So here he is, and he gets rid of everything that he knows as his comfort, as his safety net. He gets rid of it. Here's something you need to know. If you want Christ-like character to be developed in you, Christ-like character is developed when you go all in when you're all in. Don't hold anything back. You hold it back, it keeps you in the dark room. You let it go, God elevates you to the stage, and he lets your life shine bright for him. Way beyond what you can dream or imagine, but it requires this all-in attitude, kind of like a skydiver. Has anybody here ever skydived before? Okay, we've got one, one, two, two, three. Yeah, three in our west venue, they're probably all the crazy people that worship with us in the east venue have done it, probably. Um, If you skydive before, you you cannot claim the status of skydiver unless you actually jump out of the plane. I think that's all obvious, right? You can't download a certificate and go, hey, look, I, I jumped out of a plane. They're like, no, you didn't. You just lied to me. Right? You can't go watch a YouTube video of someone who has skydived. That doesn't give you the status of, like, I'm a skydiver. The only way you can say, I am a skydiver, is if you jump out of the plane. This is what Elisha did. He jumped out of the proverbial plane, right? He jumped out, he, put his, he took his comfort and his safety, and he threw it away, and he goes, God, you're going to be my parachute. He jumps out of the plane into God's arms, and he goes, God, unless you have a chute right, that I don't know about, we're crashing, So my life is in your hands for a safe landing on following you, for an outcome that's way better than what I can predict or imagine. Elisha, he walks away from everything, the riches of his family and possibly his inheritance. He slaughters everything that would be known as comfortable or as a fallback, and he goes all in for God. Elisha literally went from a rich son who had it all to an assistant of a prophet, who couldn't pay him anything, couldn't even guarantee his life for the next day. I'm here to tell you today that some dark rooms will never be escaped until you give up all of your responses and all of your options to God and you let God become number one in your life. God's looking for us to jump from our controlled safety into his arms and to put 100% of our faith in his hands. 100% 100% of our faith in raising our kids, 100% of our faith in our in the finances, 100% of the faith in getting through this difficult thing at work, 100% into his hands. My life's not my own, 100%. So, what does it look like to be a person that's a give it all to God kind of a person? What does it look like? I have some attributes for you. I'm going to go through these quickly, all right? If it's too quick, you go back later this afternoon to mindnewlifechurch.com and rewatch this sermon scan forward catch this moment all right so if you want to scan forward and catch the moment of these attributes i'm going to help you just watch for this right there you go when that moment comes up on the video then stop and hit play at this moment all right all right does everybody got it that's the signal let me see the signal what are you looking for okay very good That's by far one of the weirder things I've ever done at church. But it was out of a heart of love for you, all right? So what are these attributes? How do you know if you're living a life that's all in for God? It's when you can say these kinds of things. When you can say that God's joy is found while extending grace to others. That literally means that when you can find great joy in forgiving others for when they've harmed you, When you can find great joy for overlooking other people's faults like God does with his grace, that's when you're starting to become that give-it-all kind of a person. You want to know what else it means? It means when you can say this, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Like, my life is not my own. I'm living for Jesus today. And if I die, I'm going to spend eternity with God forever. That is gain. That's an all-in attitude. When you can say this, that the Bible sustains my passion. Not Pastor Jeff, not coming to church on Sunday. Coming to church on Sunday and my pastor is a bonus to what sustains my passion. My daily pursuit of God and his word is what sustains my passion. So whenever you hear somebody say, I'm leaving this church, why? Because I'm just not getting fed. You need to know something. That statement sounds a lot like spiritual maturity, but it's so far down the, the rung of spiritual maturity. It's such a deception, Spiritual maturity is a self-feeding attitude where the Bible starts to sustain your passion and the church just helps to fan it into a flame. When you can say this, that obedience to God's wisdom, timing, and ways brings me joy. When you can start saying, God, I don't understand where I'm at. I don't know why I gotta go through this hellish moment, but I find great joy in knowing that you're the one in complete control. I, I don't know why my comfort you know, blanket has been yanked off underneath my feet, but God, your ways are so much greater than mine. I find great joy in knowing that you are still in control. But that's not where it ends. It also goes to this, that when you, when you participate in influencing the spiritual journey of others, you're living a give-it-all kind of a lifestyle. When you're participating in, in serving out of devotion to God versus people seeing you serve and, you know, you serving for selfish gain, but out of devotion to God, now you're giving it all. When you participate in recruiting others for life group because you realize that coming to church on Sunday is just a part of the equation, being in community with other believers, now that's where real discipleship takes place. And you're actually not just going, but you're recruiting others to come with you. When you participate in a lifestyle of missions, I wake up in my mission field. I don't have to hop on a plane and go to a mission field that's fun, and it's good, and I want every single one of you to go on a missions trip. But I want you to wake up going, this is my mission field. This is where God's planted me. It's this place that I live where God wants me to let the light of Jesus Christ shine. That's a give-it-all lifestyle. But it doesn't end there. It also goes to these other set of attributes. These are the last ones, by the way. When you, uh, when you practice a daily lifestyle of obedience and awareness to God's Spirit. When daily, moment by moment, there's an awareness, God's spirit is with me, he's wanting to help me make this next decision, I'm seeking his advice in this next moment of my life. That kind of closeness with God, right, that's a give it all kind of a lifestyle. When you practice seeking daily revelation from from God's word, that daily you go, I've got to be in God's word, whether it's in the morning, in the night, in the afternoon, I've got to because I need that fresh life that only it can bring me. When you practice a lifestyle of sharing your faith, when you can't keep the story of Jesus in you, it has to get out of you. You watch it, it's just coming out of your lips like a river, right? You're encouraging others. You're sharing part of your story. You're inviting people to church with you so that they can be a part of this life-transforming journey with Jesus Christ. That's part of giving it all. When you practice intentionally discipling others, when it's not just about you being fed, but it's about you feeding others and taking them along in their journey. And then finally, when you practice tithing, giving God 10% and sacrificial giving. That's beyond the 10%. Those are the attributes that you're looking for in your life. One of those things stood out to you more than the others. The one that stood out to you, or the two that stood out to you, those are the areas where the Holy Spirit's trying to work in your life the most. If nothing stood out to you, by all means, go back, watch where I wave my hands crazy, Watch that portion again, and I want you to pray this time, and I want you to say, God, which one of these attributes are you trying to deal with my heart in? Because I want to line up with you. I want to become the man or the woman you want me to be. That's how you move from the dark room to stand on the stage for God. Are you still with me? All right. So back to the story. When Elijah came to the point where he was going to be taken to heaven, which Elijah is one of two men that was ever taken to heaven that didn't die first. Elijah and Enoch are those two guys. When Elijah knew it was about time for him to be taken to heaven, he was testing Elisha. And he said to, he said to Elisha, hey, I, I got to go to Bethel. Now, you stay here, I'm going to go to Bethel. And Elisha was like, whoa, hold on, dude. I don't think you understood. Do you remember the day that I chopped up the auction and I burned the plow? That was me going, I'm all in. Like, I, you're, not leaving, I, I, you're not leaving my sight. I'm with you to the bitter end no matter what it costs. Okay. So they make their way to Bethel. They get there, and then, you know, God speaks to Elijah, and Elijah says, hey, I got to go to Jericho. You stay here, Elisha. I'm going to Jericho. Elijah goes, did you not hear me last time before this moment? I'm with you, man. I'm with you to the bitter end. I'm all in. So they make their way to Jericho. They get to Jericho, and then Elijah says, hey, I really sense God telling me I need to go right down there to that river. I've been at Jericho. I need to go right down to the Jordan River right you can see the Jordan River from Jericho and he goes hey Elisha you stay here in Jericho I'm just going to go right down there you can see me where I'm going to go right but Elisha goes no way man you are not leaving my sight I'm with you to the bitter end I don't care what happens I'm sticking with you right I'm all in I'm consistently hungry for you you're not leaving my sight They get down to the Jordan River and Elijah, he takes off this cloak, right, that he had put on Elisha earlier and he slaps the Jordan River with it and the Bible says that the river opens wide and they walk across into what we know now as the country of Jordan. And then this is what takes place in 2 Kings chapter 2. When they came to the other side, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before I'm taken away. And Elisha replied, please let me inherit a double portion of your spirit and become your successor. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah replied. If you see me when I'm taken from you, then you will get your request. But if not, well, then you won't. Then you won't. Here's one of the things I know that happened because I know the rest of the story. And many of you do too. But Elijah's consistent pursuit of God and his faithful service to Elijah it won him the reward of a double portion of the anointing of Elijah. A few minutes later, a chariot of fire comes. It separates the two of them, and the chariot takes Elijah. And as Elijah's being taken, his cloak falls from him. Elisha sees it. He picks up the cloak, and he realizes at this moment, the very request that I gave is being granted to me. I am the successor. I have the cloak. I saw it with my own eyes. There's a double portion of God's anointing upon my life. Here's something I know that God does in even our dark room moments is this, that characters developed in our consistent hunger for God. You stay consistent with God. When you're trying to be distracted, like, hey, don't come to Bethel with me. No, you stay on target with God. You know, when you're trying to be distracted, don't go to Jericho with me right? Just stay home this Sunday. It's not really worth it. Don't get distracted. Keep pursuing God. When your day is going horrible and it's like, hey, don't go to God's word. That's not going to bring you any life. You go to God's word. Hey, it, when you have a horrible situation and you've been praying, it doesn't seem anything's changing. Don't be distracted. Run to God in prayer. You stay consistent with God. And I'm telling you, that's where God builds Christ-like character inside of you. God's looking for a hunger within all of us, for him greater than what we can produce with our own hands. God's looking for a hunger and a desire for him more than our ways. And today is an incredible moment where we're standing in the presence of God this morning. We're at a moment that we need to know how to seize. We don't want to just keep going through church, listening to another sermon, and singing some songs. We need to seize the moment where God's presence is here, just like Elisha did. He seized the moment, man. He didn't let Elijah out of his sight. Don't let the presence of God out of your sight today. Pursue him. Seek after him. Have an expectation. God's here today. He's here today to meet needs. He's here to heal wounds. He's here to mend scars. God's here today to pour out a portion of his anointing upon our lives, and we have to reach out and grab a hold of him. Or otherwise, we're going to have one more Sunday. We walk in the doors and we walk out the same. That's not why you came here today. Elisha was told that if he watched Elijah, right, be taken into heaven, that he would receive a double portion of the anointing. I need to let you know today that that wasn't something Elijah had the freedom to give him. But Elijah knew something about the character of God. And he said, if God lets you see it, God's going to do it in your life. Something I know about God today as well. I can't give you a double portion of God's anointing. But I can tell you this, that God's allowing each of you to experience his presence right now. And that tells me something, that God's wanting to reveal himself to you in a much more profound way than you've ever known. That God's wanting to show up in the midst of your dark room and he's wanting to work on your heart and your character so that you become a man or woman that's developed so he can put you on the stage. God's meeting you in your dark room this morning Because he's got a stage for you, and he wants you to stand on it and shine bright for him. So seek God with all of your heart. Seek God with a great confidence to know that he's been the one pursuing you the entire time. You stay consistent and hungry for him, right? You push past your fears today. You go all in with God today and expect God to do something dynamic in your life this morning. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Lord, I am so excited that you are on the throne, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we can come to you, Lord, we can seek you, and we can expect you to move in our lives. We don't control you, though, God. You move when you want to move. And so, Lord, we say today, right up front, we're going to take great joy in your timing and in your ways. We're gonna take great joy in that because we're gonna know that if we stay in the dark room for another week, it's because you're doing something in our hearts so that later we can stand on the stage. But if today you're gonna heal, whatever it is you need to heal in the dark room, then you've got a stage for us. That stage is not for us to build. That light is not for us to try to, you know, uh, self-motivate ourselves to become a brighter light. It's about surrender to you and surrender to your ways. It's about staying consistent and hungry and going all in, about pushing past our fears. It's about staying hungry and pursuing the presence of God. Then, God, you work miracles in our life. I'm asking you, God, to work miracles at New Life Church this morning. Miracles in North Platte. Miracles with people that are ready to give up, ready to walk away. But today, you've got a hold of their life. Miracles in our East Venue and at our Kearney campus. Miracles where you would show up and encourage and inspire people to continue the race. Fight the good fight. But Lord, I know one thing. You're calling all of us to a deep, deep place of surrender. To Give up our dream so that your dream can live. Have your way in our life today. In Jesus' name, amen.